Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Understanding the Role of Immunotherapy in Treating Cancer, and this is Part 1 of New Trends in Immunotherapy. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and many of our other programs as well. Um, now, we do have quite a few of you on the call today. We have over 324 participants on the call today, so there are a lot of you on the call today. Um, and you come from both um, from the United States primarily, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, Iraq, Russia, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And I also want to say that um, we have so many of you on the call today for many reasons. One is that you're very interested in this topic. It's a very interesting area of of cancer treatment. It's something that people really want to know more about. And also, we are uh, collaborating with many other cancer organizations who have helped to spread the word. So between all of you, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now, before we move into my introducing our first speaker, we do have just a few questions we'd like to ask all of you um, just to get a sense of what you know um, coming into the program. It helps us to better plan programs going forward. So the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand immunotherapy as a treatment option for cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of harnessing the immune system to treat cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the importance of managing the symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain of immunotherapy treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And, this, and then this will be the last question. I understand the significance of immunotherapy clinical trials as an option for the treatment of cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in um, these questions. It really helps us again as we move forward in planning all the future programs that we have coming up. Um, and now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology. He is attending physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a professor of medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. 
Chris will be addressing an overview of immunotherapy, harnessing the immune system in treating cancer, and the important role of clinical trials. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. All right. Thanks, Carolyn, and thank you all for joining us today. Uh, I uh, hope a lot of you paid attention back when you were in biology class uh, at some point in your in your schooling, because uh, some of the things I'll talk about you may, you may have learned even way back then. Uh, but you know, if you didn't, or you know, you feel a little rusty, don't um, please don't worry because. So many of the developments in the field of immunotherapeutics uh, have happened due to uh, new innovations, new technologies, new knowledge uh, that were just not there when uh, you were uh, uh, being schooled. So please, um, we're all learning this day by day. Uh, and it's been a truly amazing story. Um, I have to say that uh, in the last several decades, nothing has changed the face of, of cancer care more than the emergence of immunotherapeutics. Uh, I'll talk more about that, but it's an amazingly uh, uh, important development and, and a crucial one to improving our control of cancer. First, a word about the immune system. And, you know, there, there's so many uh, truly amazing uh, aspects of uh, the human body, uh, and the immune system is one of them. And I, I think I'd, I guess I'd like to call it it's our, our homeland security. You know, we have in our uh, innards uh, enough bacteria to end our life in a matter of hours. But because our body has found ways to corral off uh, the uh, different hazardous substances, substances that we all carry on our bodies, we're able to survive. And, uh, again, another comment is it probably saves our lives every second by its ability to uh, keep uh, invaders, viruses, bacteria, and the like, uh, and cancers out of our systems, uh, and it just does it over and over again. It's truly amazing. Also, by understanding the immune system and how our body protects us against foreign invaders, we've able to take that understanding uh, and use it to develop therapy treat infectious diseases, uh, and now to treat cancers. So we've been able to manipulate the immune system using the various principles that, that guide it uh, for uh, the benefit of uh, fighting, curing uh, illness. Uh, and I think, you know, the prime example of that is vaccination. Uh, and uh, think about it, it's just so amazing that our knowledge of the immune system and of how to develop um, molecules that can take advantage of it has been borne out here in the vaccines that fight COVID. When you, when you think about that in, in really a few short months, we went to the ability to have millions and millions of doses of vaccines available that are very effective. Uh, they don't always prevent COVID, but they amazingly prevent severe COVID infections and deaths. We also, in addition, have this uh, uh, ability to prevent not just infectious diseases, but cancers. Uh, we now have the HPV vaccine, uh, and that vaccine targeting the human papillomavirus can prevent uh, many cancers, 
Uh, and it's just an amazing story that, that we can immunize our children and young adults uh, and prevent certain cancers. So what are the various immunotherapeutics that we have? I'm going to talk the most about our so-called T-cell checkpoint inhibitors, and I'll get more uh, into that in a second. Uh, we have vaccines. Uh, we have uh, manipulations of the uh, immune cells, the so-called CAR T-cells. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor cells, where we can uh, infuse into uh, patients very effective cancer-fighting cells uh, that can work with their uh, own immune system to kill their cancer. Um, we, we've also taken an um, arm of the immune system, and that arm is the one that makes antibodies. Antibodies are proteins created by our immune cells, and these proteins very specifically uh, attach to and find and, and bind to various proteins associated with infections and associated with cancers. And so, example, the, the COVID vaccine, I'll use as an example. We immunize people with a COVID vaccine. Our body makes uh, 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 proteins antibodies that specifically attack the COVID virus. We can do the same thing uh, to create antibodies against various aspects of the cancer cell. And right now, there are two you know, main ways of doing that. One is to just create the so-called monoclonal antibodies, and probably the single best example is the drug uh, called rituximab or rituxan. It specifically targets a certain uh, type of cancer cell, and it's uh, very, very effective in eradicating that type of cell. It hones in on that cell and kills it. The other thing that we're able to do because of the uh, great advances we have in, in technology and the development of pharmaceuticals is we're able to attach other medicines to these immune cells. The, I'm sorry, to the immune uh, proteins. So uh, I think the best example of that may be uh, a, a drug called um, uh, TDM1. Uh, it takes the antibody trastuzumab that targets uh, the HER protein on breast cancer cells, and it attaches a chemotherapy drug to that monoclonal antibody. So when this is infused into a person with breast cancer, per se, it finds the antibody finds the breast cancer cell that expresses this HER2 protein. And in addition to affecting that breast cancer cell by the binding of the HER2 protein, which is important in and of itself, it brings with it a chemotherapy drug, not to the whole body, but to that breast cancer cell. It's truly an amazing story. Uh, we also have drugs, by the way, that, that mimic uh, various uh, substances that are produced when our body elicits an immune response. There's a particular one, IL-2, interleukin. Uh, it is a natural protein that our body makes as our infection-fighting, uh, cancer-fighting cells attack cancers and infections, and we can give this drug to further enhance the effect of cancer therapy. Um, all these um, uh, interventions really focus around two types of cells, the B cells, and these are those cells in the body that make the antibodies that fight infections and cancer, and then the T cells. The T cells uh, are, again, a another kind of lymphocyte, and these are the ones 
that go in and kill particularly cancer cells. They also are very important in the killing of viral cells as well. Um, our advances have been tremendous, but it's really a very, very old idea. Uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich, uh, actually the father of chemotherapy, uh, understood this concept back over 100 years ago, and scientists have been fighting hard to do that. Um, what I think people talk about most now are the uh, T-cell checkpoint inhibitors. Um, there's a, a lot of different ones around them. Uh, I'll uh, just to quickly run through the names, nivolumab, semiplumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, dervalumab, and avelumab. All of these drugs work in the same way in that they block a substance on the surface of a cancer cell. And this substance prevents the activation of the patient's immune system to kill the cancer cell. So these drugs, they don't kill the cancer cell directly. What they do is they energize or um, allow uh, the unmasking of this uh, apparatus that you have to fight and kill the cancer. So in addition, uh, in difference rather to the standard chemotherapy drugs that kill cancer cells, these drugs energize, if you will, the body's own immune infection-fighting cells and cancer-fighting cells. So it's like energizing your immune system. And this is kind of a dream that, that, that everyone has had as a way of fighting how do we tell if these drugs are going to work? Well, there are various substances that can be tested for uh, by looking at the, uh, the tumor tissues. There's a, there's a protein called PDL1. Uh, there are other measures of uh, different kinds of genes that are present. There's something called the tumor mutation burden, and there's also a, uh, a calculation uh, based on uh, the, the presence of various genes, something called MSI, microsatellite instability. Uh, if you have these various markers, and if the higher that they are, the more likely they are that immune treatments are going to, uh, going to work. A couple other developments with immune therapies. One is that, um, um, and the amazing thing about them is despite their ability to kill cancer cells and improve results of standard treatments like chemotherapy or targeted therapies, they do have this possibility of uh, leading to a cure of cancer. Um, you know, it's just an amazing story that a, a absolutely um, very deadly disease like malignant uh, melanoma uh, could come under the uh, effect of these therapies and, and not just suppress it, not just lengthen life, but actually cure patients, even when the disease has been widespread. It's truly an amazing story. And that story has been borne out with other uh, types of cancers uh, as well. The other trend that we're seeing now is using these immune drugs with other kinds of therapy. What we've seen now, particularly in the lung cancer uh, area, is by giving the uh, checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapy results are improved, and also giving these drugs with surgery, giving them with radiation has also led to an improvement in outcomes for patients, and not just improve the length of life, improve the chance that they can be cured. So I think you're going to see more and more of these drugs being used by themselves with chemotherapy, with radiation, uh, and, and with surgery either before or after. Um, 
A final word uh, about clinical trials. Um, I urge you to always ask your uh, healthcare team, are there clinical trials that can be helpful for fighting uh, your illness? Um, I think there's a, uh, a feeling by many that clinical trials are kind of a last resort. Well, the truth is they're often the first resort. There are clinical trials for each step in a person's care. Um, and it may be that we have a, a better drug that's given as the initial treatment. We may have a drug that can be given when others have failed. We may have a drug that can now be given with surgery when surgery alone used to be done. Um, so please be open to hearing about asking about clinical trials and be open to doing to, uh, to joining them if they're right for you. And also don't think that because a trial is offered uh, that there uh, that the current therapy isn't successful uh, or that you know that um, that there isn't a good outcome uh, available for you. Uh, it's it's very often something additional that can be offered to you. So um, we've had a great development with immunotherapeutics. Uh, expect to hear them offered to you with virtually every kind of cancer that you may be uh, uh, experiencing. Uh, look to, to see them used more and see them used with other types of cancer therapy. These are the trends going Thank you. Oh, but thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was a really outstanding presentation, really set the tone for today's program, set the context for this workshop on immunotherapy. And I really want to thank you so much. Um, thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is Clinical Professor of Medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center. And Dr. Dr. Daniels will be addressing how research contributes to your treatment options, examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer, and new and emerging treatments, including cancer vaccines. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you, Cancer Care, for always putting these good programs on. Um, so. In my task, those three topics, I'll run through them. You know, in thinking about them, you know, how research contributes to treatment options. Um, as Dr. Chris mentioned, that, you know, research um, has played a critical role, continues to play a critical role, but, you know, a lot of times people come in and they don't really know what does that mean? Uh, what's research? What What do you mean? Am I just a guinea pig here. I, you know, I have this problem. I don't want to do research. But, you know, taking a couple steps back, what is research? Um, research, you know, fundamentally in medicine breaks down into kind of two things. Verifying that what we're doing works. Um, so there, there are opportunities to participate in collecting data on kind of our current therapies, the long-term outcomes, toxicities, because uh, the reason all three of us are are still in this game is that uh, we don't have all the answers yet, and so we recognize that our our current treatments, while improving all the time, still continue to need work. And then the other thing research does is, you know, finds that next new thing. Um, we you know take the Socratic uh, approach to trying to understand how things work, and then changing things that we think make sense and then looking at them. So, you know, that's very basic research. And then we take those new things and translate them. So translational research then goes into the clinic. And this has been happening for hundreds of years, 
um, you know, modern medicine, you know, where you trace that back, it's, it's totally unclear. But you know, some of the some of the big things were like um, Virchow, uh, 100, 150 years ago, uh, realizing that a tumor, a cancer, is actually more than just the cancer cells, and that it comes with a whole package of other cells in there. Cooley, um, who took advantage of some observations. So, again, looking at it from a curious research kind of point of view, noted that when certain uh, infections happened after a surgery, that sometimes the cancers regressed. And then taking those concepts over the last 100 plus years and figuring out that, oh, the tumor is this complex microenvironment of all the cells that Dr. Chris was kind of outlining, these T cells and areas of checkpoints, and then trying to get more specific approaches to address these things that we're discovering. And hopefully with more specific approaches, we're improving response rates, lowering toxicity, and overall contributing to a better outcome. So research Really, that's the focus of research in medicine at these kind of basic and translational um, points. The development of cancer, you know, through the years has also changed um, in how we understand it, and that's broken down with kind of our current understanding of um, turning a cell into this immortal thing, but the growth of that cell has to be supported, and so we know about initiators of cancerous processes, and these are the things uh, that are commonly known, such as cigarette smoking, you know, full of mutagens, causes DNA damage. But we also know that that's not enough to just cause cancer, that there are other things out there too, and we call those promoters. Um, and promoters are things that cause chronic inflammation in that tumor environment that helps it bring in blood vessels and and form a, a tumor that evades the immune system. And so all this uh, research has contributed to kind of, you know, current day where we have uh, examples of immune therapy for prevention, treatment, and recurrence, which I'll talk about next, but that's all come out of this, um, this research. As far as prevention, um, Dr. Chris mentioned um, HPV vaccines. Uh, absolutely. Through research, we know that HPV infection causes cervical cancer in, in almost 100% of the cases. So if you have a way to make somebody immune to HPV infection in an effective way, you will stop cervical cancer. And so that was the impetus for developing the uh, HPV vaccine. The same viruses are found in head and neck cancers, too. Um, and we're hopeful that we'll see a decrease in head and neck cancers um, that are related to HPV infections at that point. But what else have we learned? I mean, for prevention, going back to that complex environment of the tumor, the idea of chronic inflammation, well, then that gives us insights into diet and exercise. Um, everybody knows, oh, diet and exercise are good, but why? You know, why are they good? What are they doing? What What's the important parameters there? What is an ideal weight that we need to go towards? Um, what foods um, are best? And so, yeah, unfortunately, um, cancer 
uh, incidence has gone up in a few um, cases. And we can trace back um, some of these incidences to um, inactive lifestyle, um, overweight, um, associations with other diseases such as diabetes. And if we address these lifestyles, maybe by better substitutions of things, um, uh, for example, um, changing how one even commutes to work, um, working in more exercise, 150 minutes at least a week, um, getting up your heart rate. We know that these change uh, cancer rates now, and we're getting down to the molecular level of understanding why they change cancer rates. Same thing um, on treatments, um, the understanding of these immune cells being at the ready, ready to take care of the cancer, but just not doing it. Um, that happens in a variety of cancers. And so as Dr. Chris mentioned, um, that led to the discovery of these checkpoints, what's keeping those immune cells from from getting the cancer. And so uh, the ones he mentioned, um, everybody knows, um, like Keytruda and Optivo, um, that will, in some cases, cause regression of tumors by having your own body's immune system uh, take care of them. And then now that we have that insight, um, once a cancer's been taken out, how can we lower the risk of, of the cancer coming back? And again, um, we can apply these immune therapies and lifestyle changes. Um, one of the biggest uh, benefits in, for example, colorectal cancers and keeping the colorectal cancer from coming back is dietary and lifestyle changes. And so these are something everybody can implement. Uh, you don't even have to wait for having colon cancer. Um, you can implement these dietary and exercise programs. And then as far as uh, new and emerging treatments, um, you know, we talked about vaccines. Vaccines are are in some sense easy for us to understand, but uh, they do have some requirements that what we're targeting with the vaccine has to be kind of central to the growth and development of the cancer. Um, uh, what we target has to be unique. Um, so getting a, a very specific immune response to something, we don't want it to be, for example, some target that's also on the heart or in the liver or something. And it has to be accessible to the immune system. So it has to be something that the immune system can see. So once you fulfill all those re requirements, um, then we can uh, develop a vaccine. And again, just uh, restating that HPV has been one of those targets that has, uh, has um, responded to a vaccine strategy. With um, uh, our, our cancer sequencing of the DNA um, has come out the idea that cancers themselves have um, a unique pattern of mutations in them that's different among everybody. Uh, so if uh, you develop a lung cancer in one patient, that lung cancer may have some commonalities with another patient's lung cancer, but deep down there are hundreds of unique um, patterns that are in that patient's uh, lung cancer. Uh, we're getting to the point in technology where we can get to that pattern that's unique to each patient and at least consider approaches such as making personalized vaccines that target very unique things about that patient's uh, um, cancer. And, you know, one thing that COVID pushed forward was this idea of making RNA-based uh, vaccines that allow for a relatively quick turnaround time. One can imagine getting soon to that point where we can get data from a, from a patient's tumor and 
potentially apply strategies like that. So, um, you know, every every time uh, we have these conferences, I realize that the pace of change is is, is rapid. Um, there's it's it's overwhelming um, how quickly our understandings continue to evolve. Um, but going back to my topic, which is research. Um, and uh, what Dr. Chris says is that clinical trials, I also put a plug, they really should be looked at as a first resort um, because there's a lot of great stuff um, already developed, but we can improve these, and uh, clinical research is, is our best avenue to do that. So with that, I'll wrap it up and pass the baton. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was wonderful, just an excellent presentation, really outstanding, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our, our next speaker um, is Dr. Um, Ahmed Sawas, and Dr. Sawas will be an assistant professor of medicine and experimental therapeutics, um, Center of Lymphoid Malignancies, Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Sawas will be addressing reporting treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort to the healthcare team, follow-up care, what to expect, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sawas. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, uh, I'm tasked with answering a very uh, and addressing a very large topic, so I'm going to mention highlights and uh, definitely take those as uh, starting points to help answer uh, many of these questions. With the first question being, what are the side effects of immunotherapy? And uh, both my colleagues have discussed specifically uh, PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors and other uh, checkpoint inhibitors, and, 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 and these are very important important and as the immune these are uh, immune uh, therapies the result their side effects can affect and can result from immune related uh, symptoms most of immunotherapies when we see side effects of them they usually affect uh, the skin and the GI system the colon so rashes diarrhea uh, are top of mind some of the ones that we are most afraid of are uh, lung, uh, lung toxicity, those can be something called pneumonitis and inflammation of the lung, uh, or hepatitis and inflammation of the liver. Thankfully, these side effects are very, very rare and very, very uh, uncommon to see. Uh, some of the more common ones, and you could see your clinicians and your healthcare team looking at and evaluating our endocrine or endocrinology-related side effects, they check the thyroid function, uh, the parathyroid function, uh, by checking TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and uh, they do that before initiation of a lot of the immune ther immune uh, therapy, especially the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors, and throughout the course, and that's to make sure that if there is supplementation that is needed, that uh, is uh, provided. It's important to note that many of these side effects are moderate or mild, and they're not usually very severe and can be easily reversed with disruption of the drug or supplementation, uh, as in the issue or as in the case of uh, hypothyroidism or thyroiditis, inflammation of uh, thyroid. 
uh, they usually don't start right away. They usually take a few weeks to a month to start appearing, uh, but can happen anytime afterwards. So just because you've been on an immunotherapy or your loved one's been on immunotherapy for a long period of time, doesn't mean that these side effects may not appear at a later point in time. So definitely it's important to uh, not uh, dismiss the therapy as a cause for new symptoms or signs uh, that uh, happen. Uh, uh, so uh, the best thing to do is if something changes with your healthcare or the healthcare of your loved one, whether it's new symptoms or new signs, is to bring that uh, to the attention of the healthcare team. And the healthcare team will be aware of the relationship between these side effects and the symptoms that you report and the potential causality and, and, and cause uh, to uh, the immunotherapy that is being administered. From there, I want to transition to a different question, is how will immunotherapy-related side effects be managed? So we've talked about that, they can, that uh, immunotherapy side effects can be different, can present in different ways, uh, specifically when we talk about the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, but how do they manage? And uh, it depends really on their severity, how severe they are, how disabling they are, how much disturbance to the health and uh, the management of uh, the disease they can cause. Sometimes it can be by altering the schedule and the dose of therapy, and sometimes if they're severe, uh, that could result in interruption or discontinuation of the therapy, depending on uh, how uh, these symptoms presented and uh, uh, how they are being managed. A lot of times uh, we would see employment of steroids like uh, prednisone, dexamethasone, methoprednisone, different types of steroids, uh, because steroids, what they do is they calm down the immune system, they calm down the inflammation, they calm down uh, the response. And as a result, they could be very effective in uh, the treatment and management of side effects of, uh, uh, of immunotherapies. And they can start off as intravenous or injections under the skin and quickly be transitioned to oral therapies uh, uh, as a result. And that can be, uh, they could be administered for some time and then tapered slowly over time. Uh, and always the decisions to uh, decrease the doses, interrupt or add medications to your treatment are always balanced against uh, the, the, the risks of the progression of the tumor. So generally what we see is overall uh, the management of disease is not uh, significantly compromised by managing the toxicity. So things are done in balance. Uh, I think uh, as we are uh, in the COVID and post-COVID era, uh, hopefully soon, uh, one thing that has changed in the medical field is how you interact with a lot of your clinical uh, providers. And uh, many of you may have experienced and participated in uh, virtual healthcare visits, whether them uh, being over a video visit or just through phone calls. And uh, talking about COVID, uh, yeah, definitely uh, there have been many concerns about uh, the vaccine, uh, the infection with COVID, and the administration of treatments in general, 
and immunotherapy specifically. I'll plug in just specifically for uh, my specialty on lymphoma and treatment of lymphoid diseases that uh, it was not uncommon for us to interrupt and discontinue some of the immunotherapies that we provide for our patients, which is usually rituximab, the anti-CD20 antibody, and other anti-CD20 antibodies because uh, those specific drugs inhibit the B cells. And this is very different than Keytruda, Pembrolizumab, and other checkpoint inhibitors that usually stimulate the T cells. In, in uh, lymphomas, we have interrupted immunotherapy because it inhibits the B cells, which are important for the production of antibodies and response to vaccine to allow our patients uh, and allow you to be able to benefit from the vaccine maximally. And that's usually a balance between how important it is to be on the treatment and what is the risk of uh, COVID infection and having protection from COVID. So trust, I mean, I think it's important to discuss these things with your uh, healthcare providers and trust that they'll make the best decision and advise you uh, in terms of continuation of treatment or discontinuation and receipt of uh, the vaccine and management of uh, the COVID infection if it happens. But as we talked about, uh, I'll, I'll move into the third uh, main topic that I'm in charge of talking about, which is preparing for virtual care visits. And I think there are some general principles that are important for both uh, virtual visits and in-person visits, which is to write down and have a diary. I suggest to my patients always to have a journal that documents and uh, they could uh, chronicalize their journey and their symptoms. And that allows, especially during a virtual healthcare visit where you're dealing with a lot of technology issues, where uh, it's a different setting and it lacks a little bit of that personal touch and personal connection, is to have an itemized list of things to discuss with your healthcare team uh, so you don't forget them and, and having a paper and pen to go through that I think it's important uh, definitely to check your email uh, for instructions. If you didn't receive them, contact the practice ahead of time to make sure that you have the right instructions. Uh, it's important to have a good setting for the healthcare visit. So you don't want to call your physician or your healthcare team from a car or a crowded bus or a, a noisy area. You want a place where you could still focus. So you want to choose a quiet room. And uh, for technology issues, I would say try not to have too many open applications on your device uh, or whether it's a computer or phone so as not to distract you and complicate things. Also, it's important to be camera ready as much as you can. So choose an, an area with a lot of light so the clinical team can see you. There is a lot of information uh, and assessment that can happen just by seeing a person. Uh, make sure the camera is ready, get comfortable, wear loose clothes. You don't have to be, have very uh, formal wear uh, to allow for if you want to show a body part through the camera to uh, your healthcare team that you're able to do so. So these are just some general uh, directions. Uh, there is very little time and a lot to cover, but I hope uh, I was able to shed the light on some uh, general highlights. Uh, I'll stop here and uh, wait for the Q&A uh, uh, session to answer any further questions. Uh, back to you, Carol. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Salas. That was really outstanding, very comprehensive, covered a lot, and, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you so very much. That was excellent. 
I'm going to say a few words just about the services of cancer care. Um, and um, so I just want to say um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, all of our services are free. We're a nonprofit organization. And um, many people contact Cancer Care by calling our Hope Line, um, 800-813-4673, and speak to one of our oncology social workers. We have about 35 oncology social workers. And so when you call, um, there's always someone um, available to take your, your call. Um, and I think that... Um, we often offer support or help to address questions that people may have. In addition, um, we also um, offer um, uh, a number of other services. We offer practical uh, financial and co-payment assistance as well as COVID assistance uh, grants as well. Um, many of you are having tremendous financial issues right now, and we do try to offer financial help either from ourselves or through our case management program, I'll link you up to organizations that can meet your needs. Um, so that um, that's a very important service that we offer. And um, historically, we've offered that. Cancer Care has been around for 77 years, and we've been, that's from the inception of the organization, the concept of giving financial assistance has always been there. It's an, it's a, it's so incredibly important um, to so many people. Um, we also have online support groups, um, and they are online support groups are for both people living with uh, cancers, or people who are caregivers, people who are young adults, people who are older adults, middle-aged adults. Um, we have programs for um, we have a special program for children um, and teens who are affected by cancer in their family. Um, and um, we also offer workshops like these, about 75 of them per year, on different topics. And we also have a number of publications that we provide as well. Um, I should say at the end of the program, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, and it'll be an evaluation. We do appreciate you filling it out. But the evaluation will also include any links that we may have provided during the program, so um, website links, um, uh, telephone numbers, any organizations that we think would be helpful to you um, to contact that is available to you. Now, before we move into the Q&A, um, I just have a few uh, final uh, questions to ask all of you. So, um, again, I guess will help us in our planning programs going forward. Um, so um, I really appreciate your feedback on these. It really is so helpful. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of immunotherapy as a treatment option for cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of harnessing the immune system to treat cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I've learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating.
And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of working with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain of immunotherapy treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in immunotherapy clinical trials as an option for the treatment of cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. It really helps us very much and as we plan future programs to have your immediate feedback on these programs. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your online questions as possible. So I'm going to um, turn this over to Michelle to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So um, we have a number of actually online questions, so let me just... Um so this would be a question... Um, for um, for Dr. Sawas, can the use of immunotherapy in a clinical trial setting result in significant and or debilitating side effects? Um, yes. So to repeat the question, uh, the question is, can it oh, result can... in debilitating? That's right. Yes. Insignificant or debilitating side effects. Yeah, so so definitely for a very small number in very rare situations, with the use of any medications, uh, side effects can be significant, uh, debilitating, and sometimes uh, mortality causing, and that's unfortunate. Uh, and definitely, it's an event that uh, we as invest as clinicians and as many of us are clinical trial investigators try to learn and predict for it ahead of time. And that's why I think close follow-up and fast reporting of symptomology to the clinicians and not ignoring or belittling, belittling any change in your healthcare or uh, health situation or symptoms uh, is very important because uh, early reporting of, uh, of change can result in earlier intervention and decrease or even prevent escalation of uh, the symptoms to that scale. But yes, definitely these are uh, powerful cells, I mean the immune cells, and uh, if overactivated or activated in the wrong way can cause significant morbidity and mortality. Okay. Um, and um, a question now for Dr. Um, Daniels. Um, can I get the COVID vaccine? This is a question that comes up a lot, so this is one we were anticipating. Can I get the COVID-19 vaccine while receiving immunotherapy treatment? Dr. Daniels, if you could address this question. Yeah, so um, as Carolyn said, well, we were talking about this even before. It's a, it's a current topic, and um, as more and more people are vaccinated, we're learning a lot more 
Um, and so what um, we've done in practice is for patients who have the option of getting the vaccine, uh, we do encourage uh, the vaccine. And, and the spacing with therapy, we know therapy is going to influence response to vaccine. We know that having cancer is going to influence the response to the vaccine. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we know that um, COVID has taken a lot of lives. And so the general practice has been to give the vaccine on different days than um, therapy, just in case uh, there's um, some overlapping uh, symptoms, as um, was just discussed. And uh, our personal practice or our practice here is when possible, we separate the vaccine from therapy days by a week, either before or after. Um, now that all said, those are our concerns. Um, lots of uh, data is being collected on patient outcomes, response to vaccines, looking at antibody titers over time. And so far, uh, we have not seen a significant uh, change in the uh, possible side effects from the vaccine or outcomes in uh, cancer therapy. So we're trying to remain hopeful, but just a little cautious. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a um, question for Dr. Sawas. Um, so who should get involved in clinical trials for immunotherapy? That's a general question. Um, so I think uh, every patient should discuss with their healthcare team to see if they're uh, candidates for uh, clinical trials. Uh, the majority of clinical trials are safe. The majority of clinical trials uh, undergo significant review, both by uh, local IRB boards as well as uh, the FDA to, to allow uh, these trials to be conducted through a process called an IND. Uh, and uh, if uh, specifically for patients in the relapse refractory setting or patients who have rare diseases, being involved in a clinical trial has been shown uh, uh, to be beneficial to many of the patients in terms of providing uh, access to newer medications and improvement in the survival of patients. It's definitely up to the clinical team to advise you in terms of how good of a candidate you are for these trials because uh, these trials have inclusion and exclusion criteria to make sure that the patients can tolerate uh, the treatment and go through it as safely as possible and they try to screen out patients who may have certain risk factors for developing significant toxicities for these trials. Yeah, can I add, Thank a, you. add a comment? Yes, yes, um, please, yes. Yeah, if, if as, you, as was said, you talk to your healthcare team and there's a trial option, one other thing to keep in mind is that even if a patient is, um, sometimes these are comparative studies uh, where one treatment's compared to the next, even in those cases where patients are given the standard treatment, which could be an immune therapy, um, it appears that outcomes um, as best as we can match up uh, are improved even with the same drug in the context of a clinical trial. And there's lots of kind of head scratching about that, but some of it is um, patients have a whole team uh, besides the treating physician's team, but there's a research team also monitoring patients. And patients' um, side effects, um, a, lot of, a lot of testing is scripted 
that might be part of it. Um, patients feeling like they're more involved in their in their care and contributing in, in another way could be part of it. But I think it's an interesting point to just bring out is that even if you get assigned to quote unquote the standard treatment, your outcomes are improved. Um, and so another plug for clinical trials. That's an excellent point, Dr. Daniels. Thank you. That's really important for everyone to be aware of how unique these clinical trial teams are. It's uh, amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, and a question for you, then, Dr. Daniels. What about retreatment or treatment with a different immunotherapy? What determines the window for treatment for immunotherapy? Yeah, um, I'll take a stab. Um, immune therapy is a general word. Um, so there are different immune therapies. So as was mentioned, some of the common ones right now are the PD-1 inhibitors, and, and there's a slew of them. Certainly if one had a PD-1 inhibitor like Keytruda, there is, as best we can tell, not really an advantage of switching to an exact same mechanism of immune therapy, such as another PD-1 inhibitor like Optivo. So that kind of switch doesn't seem to have any value. But uh, what's commonly done is if patients respond to one immune therapy and then stop, then things can be added. So the immune therapy is continued, but um, trying to address that point of resistance has come up. Or a switch to a different immune therapy, such as um, IL-2 that was mentioned, or a Yervoy, which is a CTLA-4 blocker. So it's quite complicated, but certainly if uh, one immune therapy fails, it doesn't mean that there's not other immune-based treatment options available. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for, um, for Dr. Salas. Um, so this is a question um, for Dr. Salas. Is immunotherapy uh, clinical trials safe and effective for someone with previous mild autoimmune issues? Uh, Yes, I mean, definitely autoimmunity it can be a challenge uh, with uh, with uh, immunotherapies, and it depends on the immunotherapy that is being applied. Uh, so definitely certain uh, autoimmune diseases can be exacerbated by uh, activa activation of the immune system, and uh, Certain anti uh, immunotherapies can actually inhibit the immune system and help improve uh, autoimmune conditions. So I'll give an example of rheumatoid arthritis when treated with, with lymphoma regimens usually improves and in many cases results during the treatment and usually recurs afterwards. And I had patients that uh, continue to receive in, uh, immunotherapy uh, that was initially prescribed for their, chemotherapy, for their cancers, for their lymphomas, but then received it uh, in different dose and different regimen uh, for their rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it depends really on the immunotherapy and discussion with the healthcare providers uh, who are offering the trial will have uh, will be important because it's not a, a blanket uh, statement where it's contraindicated for all the patients. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Oh, these are great questions. I have to say these are outstanding questions and really, um, really have wonderful uh, speakers to address these questions as well, but they're really terrific questions. Um, this may be our last question for Dr. Daniels. Does autoimmunotherapy increase my risk of infection? 
um, if you could comment on that. Sure. Yeah, in in general, um, no. Um, but um, as Mr. Shaw was mentioning, there are, you know, it gets down into the weeds a little bit. For example, sometimes we give immune therapies and a toxicity comes up and we have to give something to counteract that immune therapy. And that thing that we give could suppress the immune system and make people more susceptible to infections. So in that case, yes. And then some people consider um, um, medications like rituximab as immune therapy. These are antibodies that target um, um, molecules on, on antibody-making cells and are used in lymphoma treatments, as was mentioned. That is uh, potentially looked at as immune therapy, and it is immune suppressive. But the general ones that are used, such as Keytruda, Optivo, Yervoy, are not themselves um, considered immune suppressive, and we don't see um, increased uh, infections with them. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our participants, and I want to thank our speakers. This has been a, a remarkable call. I, I, we have done, we have presented on this topic before, but I have to say this um, this particular program has been um, particularly the questions have been so amazing, and I just want to thank um, the participants for asking them, and I want to thank our speakers for addressing them so fully and, and thoroughly. Um, and so I know there are many more questions in queue, and honestly, we could spend quite a bit more time on the phone. Um, on a line actually addressing all your questions. And because this program is uh, an hour in length, um, I just want to say something about all of you who still have questions in queue. And so, so first of all, for those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question that you have not yet been able to ask, and for those of you who, as you listened, learned material that you was new to you or that you want to know how it applies to you, in all of those situations, we would want you to take it back to your healthcare team. Even if you asked a question today and feel happy with the answer that you got, still take it back to your healthcare team since they know all the details about your situation and indeed are quite able then to kind of adapt it or you can also ask more informed questions of your healthcare team based on what you may have learned today. That's important as well. So um, we don't want anyone to feel alone that you have no one to help you with your questions. You do have your healthcare team, which does consist of many, many different disciplines. And also you do have, of course, um, a number of – we'll be sending you a listing of many uh, nonprofit organizations that do offer an opportunity to pose questions to them as well. Um, and also um, – we will also be um, providing you, um, you know, websites um, and information about how to access clinical trials, how to get information. So really, um, and also about immunotherapy. So you'll have information at your fingertips that you'll be able to actually use, um, and that that's really important for all of you as well. Most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave this program today feeling alone. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support, and there are a lot of organizations out there that can help you. In addition, and and also your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep your healthcare team. However, um, I also, because of COVID and because of some of the restrictions that um, are occurring in different parts of the United States and in, uh, in internationally as well, um, people are feeling a little bit more alone to some extent. Um, and so uh, that's quite normal, um, but we want you to know that you're simply a phone call or a mouse clip, a mouse, mouse clip away from actually um, getting information and getting someone to help you. And there are, with your healthcare team, please find out 
what, what their hours are in terms of evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those seem to be a time when people seem to have the most questions, it seems to me, and so basically be sure that you know. And there are some organizations will be sending that information that do have 24-hour centers, but they never would take the place of your healthcare team. But there are places that you can call um, if you just have a, a basic question that you just would like to get some information on. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.